and I, there are many things about us that are just easily and quickly different. For one, for those interested in the sports connections, you know I'm a Tennessee fan. He loves that ugly red crimson team called Alabama. We could not be more different in, than that. He's also like many of you, unfortunately, in that he loves the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm a diehard Atlanta Braves fan who are 2-0 and over your 1-1 and Cardinals, by the way. My dad also and I have similarities. We both have worked in sports for the majority of our lives. He is a high school football coach and has been for over 30 years. I worked for eight years in a multi-billion dollar industry of college athletics. We have that in common in the sports world. But even our personalities are different. My dad, one of the things, I love my dad and I would tell him in his face, one of his things though, coming home, his favorite thing was to plop on the couch and, and turn on the TV and watch things games and, and different things, especially golf. Me, I'd much rather be on the floor playing with our girls. Yes, there's times I'm tired and want to just sit there. But we're different in, in those personalities. He's one who, uh, he has his hobbies and I have mine. We're, we're different in many ways and yet our personalities are very similar in other ways. We're similar in the fact that we're both hard-headed. We're both stubborn. I find myself doing certain traits and carrying certain mannerisms. I find myself repeating a phrase he used as a child just to keep himself from cursing. He would use the phrase, Dad Jimmit. Just Dad Jimmit. A, a phrase just to, to express himself in frustration without giving himself to other phrases that were unhelpful or unfitting for a child to hear. You can ask my family. I find myself using that phrase from time to time. So like father, like son, there, there's certain things that as much as I try at times to be my own individual that I find myself repeating after my father and his image. But you know, that shouldn't be surprising considering God the Father and God the Son are so alike. God the Son comes to imitate his Father in his work and to represent him. And that's what we see this morning as we come to John chapter 5 verses 16 through 30. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open that up, whether it be a pew Bible or a personal Bible or if you've got a fancy smartphone, you can open up the Bible app and, and follow along there. But as you're turning there, we, we've been in John for some time, but as we come particularly to John 5, verses 16 through 30, we would be helped on reminding some things to help give us a running start into this text. Again, this gospel account is being written by the beloved apostle John. He's writing so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But now in part of, of helping us believe, he, he rightly structures his gospel to help unfold what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God. Back in the prologue of John 1, 1 through 18, we, we see that Jesus 
was with God. He is God. And he's the God made flesh in John 1.14. That Jesus took on humanity by becoming man and yet fully being God. So this is part of what it means to be the son of God. But what does it mean for the son of God and the father to interact? What does that look like? And that's what John 5, 16 through 30 begins to help us to understand a little bit more about the relationship of the Father and the Son. So hear the word of the Lord from John 5, beginning in verse 16 through verse 30. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will be shown. He will show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. So much here, and yet there is a theme running through it. I think this sums up these verses, and Lord willing will sum up this sermon. Here's the main idea. As the Son of God... Jesus does God's work of giving life now and carrying out eternal judgment. Therefore, if we are to live, we must hear and believe his words. Let me repeat that, and it's on the screen. As the Son of God, Jesus does God's work of giving life now and carrying out eternal judgment. Therefore, if we are to live, we must hear and believe his words. We're going to unfold this in three parts. Point one, Jesus works as the father. Point two, Jesus works to give life. 
And point three, Jesus works to execute judgment. Let's look at part one. Jesus works as the father. Look again at verses 16 through 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jews are right to be criticizing Jesus of saying, wait a minute, dude, you're calling yourself equal with God here in this statement. Jesus doesn't deny this. The Jews are right to understand him because they actually, for once, rightly understand him. That Jesus here is claiming equality with God by calling him Father. How so? By saying that he works as the Father works in this healing of an invalid man on the Sabbath. Friends, God, the Son, along with that of the Holy Spirit... And God the Father, do not stop working. All three here work without ceasing. Because all three, although distinct persons, are one eternal triune God. They work together to sovereignly uphold the universe. Think about it. The sunrise we saw this morning is not possible without God's causing it to rise. The sun will not set without God's sovereign work of causing it to set. God is upholding it all. And Jesus is no different. The Apostle Paul helps us in Colossians 1.17 as he writes, And he, being that of Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, being the Son of God, is holding all things together. He has and he is doing this work. And Sabbath or no Sabbath, this work does not stop. He does not stop working at any point. That's good news for us. On a, a day that many churches make much of, of Palm Sunday and of Resurrection Sunday, of Sabbaths, God does not cease to work. He continues to work. We see this down in verse 22, in fact, uh, of how and why the Son is working. In 22 and 23, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three are to be honored in the work that they do because they all are working together. To make the glory of the triune God known. And to restore us a sinful and broken creation back to God. They're turning back the curse of sin and death. But what do we make of this? We, we often struggle here at understanding the Trinity. 
Yes, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but the concept is, and this is what Jesus is teaching us. He is teaching us about the relationship of God the Father and God the Son particularly, but it's later will be taught of the Holy Spirit's work in that. So how do we understand this triune God? Well, the Athanasian Creed, uh, a creed that was developed in, in the Middle Ages, was helps sum up these thoughts, helps us to understand the distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's just part of this creed. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. Now that's just a small taste of the Athanasian Creed. And, and if you miss bits or most of that, I would encourage you to, to go and Google and look the Athanasian Creed up this afternoon. But I, what I want us to grasp from this is the fact that they are distinct. This is a helpful way for us to sum up the doctrine of the Trinity and understand this relationship of the Father and the Son in particular here in John 5. The Father and the Son are two distinct persons, and yet they are one eternal God. They exist together. They work together. They do the same work and about the same purpose even though if their work looks a little differently. But in particular, we need to grasp that work and a big truth here, that God does not cease from working. Our girls have a, a little book at home that we read from time to time. Does God sleep? Does God sleep? And it helps labor out a big truth for them to understand. And folks, we need to understand that big truth as well. No, God does not sleep. In the book in particular, it uses a few examples that I think are helpful. Does God ever grow so tired and weary that he can't keep his eyes open or can't get out of bed? Does God ever work out so hard his arms are about to fall off? No. God does not cease from working. He is never too tired from working, from going about the things he is meant to accomplish. And folks, that is good news for us. Think about it. If God grows too tired to do this work, if there is moments he is too weary to do this work, creation itself goes into chaos even more than we think it already is. You think it's bad? If God was not sovereignly behind everything, it truly would be in chaos. It truly would be in chaos. And yet, he holds it all together. 
If God was so tired that he could not go about his work, then he would cease to be there to hear our prayers in our deepest and darkest hour. If God ceases to work and and needs to rest, then Jesus, the Son of God, equal with the Father, could not then intercede for us before the Father when we need him most. Friends, do you understand why Jesus goes here to labor his work, that he does the work of the Father? It has massive implications for us as Christians. If Jesus does not do the same work as the Father and continue to go about it, we have a weak Savior and one who's not able to intercede for us in the moment of our need. Jesus doesn't grow weary. He doesn't become burdened and tired. That's why he invites us to come and rest if we are weary and heavy laden in him. Because he's always working to turn back the curse of sin and death in this world. He's going about it then and he is right now, friends. He's at work turning back the curse of sin and death in each and every one of us who have believed in his name. Think about the work that the Spirit and the Son are doing to sanctify you. That moment where you become convicted by sin and say, Lord, help me. Help me to turn and do this no more. Whose work do you think that is? It's the work of the triune God working through you, through the power of his word. But it's God the Son and God the Spirit working in you and through you. This is the work he does not cease to stop doing. Friends, let us see this big truth that God does not sleep. He does not rest. He does not grow weary. Father, Son, or Spirit. And let us rejoice in that. Brothers and sisters, we need to see too. Though the Son does this work, he's not claiming to assert authority over God the Father. Even though he does work like God the Father, his work is under that of God the Father, though. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Son only imitates the work of the Father. He is not on his own mission, going about his own plan, doing his own thing. He can do, let's put this in in southern slang, he can do nothing apart from God the Father. He can't do nothing that he doesn't see the Father doing. The Son imitates the Father in all that he does He submits to the Father's plans. He submits to the Father's counsels. Counsel. He submits to the Father in all of this. Why? Because Jesus is the one who has seen God the Father. And he has come to reveal God the Father to us. No man has ever seen God the Father in his fullness. Moses caught but a glimpse of his back. But he could not see his face because his glory would consume Moses. 
But the Son has seen all that the Father is. He has been eternally with the Father prior to his incarnation. And he left the Father's son eye to come and dwell among man so that the glory of God may be fully revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus comes so that we may know and fully understand God the Father. He comes to do His work so that we may better know Him and come to love Him. This is the work that Jesus has come to do. To make the Father known through His life, death, and resurrection so that we may be reconciled to Him. But He doesn't do this submissive work out of duty. Look at verse 20, or the first part of 20, or what I'm calling 20a, that first sentence. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. The Father loves the Son and shows to him all these works that Jesus has come to reveal and to do. But the Son is submissive to the Father in the fact of that very love. Jesus is obedient to the Father because of the Father's love for Him. And it's His love for the Father that is shown in His perfect submissive obedience to do all that the Father has done and has called Him to do. Jesus comes not out of obligation, he comes out of his full overflowing love for God the Father to do this saving work. This life-giving work. Jesus comes to do out of the overflow of his love for the Father. Christian, let us not be fooled. Jesus is not obedient merely because he must. He's obedient because he loves the Father. Such perfect love the world has not known until Jesus came. We cannot know love apart from seeing this love of the Father and the Son for one another. A love that has always existed and was there in creation. And it is there as creation is being restored through the work of Jesus. But also notice what this does, what the fullness of Jesus' work is doing. Look at the rest there of verse 20. Look at the rest of verse 20, that last sentence. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. The Father is going to show greater works than these so that we may marvel. What are these greater works? What is it being compared to? First and foremost, remember why Jesus is under accusation here by the Jews. He's healed and invalid. He's restored to him fullness of life in healing him completely. He's no longer an invalid, but walks. Walks as a normal man with good legs and good posture. He's under accusation because he's done this on the Sabbath. And yet if they're offended by this, still more and greater works are they about to see. But what are those works? Well, that's where we turn in our falling two points. Jesus' works to give life. That's one of the works that we see. But he also works to execute judgment. These are the works that are greater 
that we should marvel in. First, let's look at our second point. Jesus works to give life. Look back at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus here grounds His greater work of the Father raising the dead and giving life. This comes from Deuteronomy 32, 39, which says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now, the Lord has entrusted some prophets. And especially think about Elijah in 1 Kings 17 of raising the widow's son from death. Bringing life again. This is purely a work of God the Father of raising the dead to life again. And giving them life And yet, this is the work that Jesus says he is doing too. That he is raising the dead and he is giving life to whom he will. Now, on a Sunday like this, with Resurrection Sunday just a week away, we might be tempted that this is primarily talking about Jesus's own resurrection. Next Sunday, we're going to sing up from the grave. He arose with a mighty triumph or his foes. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in raising the dead. Jesus will raise Lazarus from the grave. He will raise others from the grave. And yet, as awesome as that is and as significant as that is, that's not here what Jesus is talking about when he says he is going to raise the dead. And give them life. Give life to whom he will. Friends, he's talking about the powerful work of the gospel. Of saving dead sinners to himself. So that they may live in him. Consider the words of Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The mighty work of Jesus that should cause us to be in awe is that he has come to call us dead sinners to himself, to rise from being spiritually dead and unaware of our need of a Savior, that He calls us to life through His Word, to rise and have life in Him. Not just any life, but abundant life. This is the mighty work that Jesus has done, and He does it through His Holy Word. Through his speaking. Look here following at at how this continues to unfold. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus does this through his word. All who hear And believe the one who sent him will have eternal life. Jesus 
calls the dead to life through his word, his message. That is why, Christian, as we take the gospel out, it is not merely telling somebody a conversion story or what Jesus means to us. We need to tell them this life-giving word so that people may hear and believe because it's this gospel that is the power of salvation that awakens the dead to life. That's why we make much of the gospel. It's not just some catchphrase. Because it's in this gospel, in this good news of Jesus, that life flows abundantly. How? Why? Look down with me at verses 27. Or, yeah, uh, 25 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is able to do this because he being fully God, like the Father, has life in himself. They're not dependent on another. Friends, we we like to think we're self-sufficient, that apart from God creating our father and mother of Adam and Eve, we do not exist. We were created beings made in his image. Though Jesus is the son of God, he is the eternal son of God. He has always existed. He never did exist. He was not created or made. He's always existed as the eternal son of God. They have life in themselves and life to give. And again, they do this as we saw there in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. But notice that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. An hour is coming, but it it clarifies it's now here. Right now, as Jesus walks and teaches, the hour is here when the dead will hear his voice and rise, and those who hear will live. This is the life-giving work of the Son of God. He comes to breathe life as he speaks and teaches and point us to himself. It's through this word that he saves. And it's not futuristic. It's here, right now, in this very hour. Jesus speaks through his word so that we may hear and live in him. Whether we are a Christian already or not yet one, he speaks so that we can live in him. If we're a Christian, he speaks so that we can have that life restarted and be reminded of the hope we have in him. Where our life is found. He doesn't come to save us so that we can forget. He doesn't come to to just save us and it be futuristic. Salvation, life, it happens in the moment we hear and believe. Look back at verse 24 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He has passed. That's what Greek scholars call a perfect tense. He passed. It's already happened, but with future forever implications. For the one who has heard and believed the words of Jesus, the one who has already placed their saving faith in Jesus, they've already passed from death to life. Yes, their bodies will still die. They still battle sin within their fleshly members. And yet they've already passed from death to life. All that remains for them is to close their earthly eyes and awaken and see their Savior face to face in glory. Christian, do you understand that? You're not one who is dead. You're alive you have passed from death to life because of your faith in Jesus. He has brought you into life through him. And that you may live. The curse of sin is already falling away on you because Jesus has brought you from death to life. He's already undoing the curse of sin and, and sin's grip on you is weakening as you go throughout the Christian Life, Because that life is flowing throughout you. You're learning to live in right relationship with God. You're being restored to that relationship and learning to follow him in that love for him as the son loves the father. Well, Christians see the life that we have been given and it's here and now. Christian, will you realize that you live in Jesus so whatever this world may bring, yes, it still will bring death and sorrow and pain. But we live in him. Have that hope. Rest in that. Jesus comes to do a great work of bringing us to life in him. Right here, right now, for all who place their faith in Jesus alone for their salvation. We have life in the Savior. And friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know anything about this, that invitation is to you too. Though you may not currently live, the hope of life is being extended to you right now through the words of Jesus. So that you may hear the gospel and believe for the first time. So that you too may pass from death to life. And know that you have eternal life in you now but beware because if you don't jesus came to do another great work and that's where we turn in our third and final point this morning jesus works to execute judgment look back at verses 22 and 23 for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus has been given all judgment by the Father. The Father has turned all judgment over to his beloved Son. 
But what does that look like? What does it mean? Well, for, for one, we've already seen that it's calls to bring honor to Jesus, the Son of God, so that he may be honored with God the Father and God the Spirit. But more importantly, we, we see this unfold in verses 27 through 30. 27 says, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is, is referencing back to Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where the attributes of man and, and divine attributes are, are found and being pointed to being in one person who is to come. Jesus is the Son of Man who is both fully man and fully God. And what better one to judge all humanity and give all judgment to than the one who is both man and God, and yet without sin. But what does that judgment look like? Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now this is a futuristic hour, an hour which is coming in the eschatological age, the second coming of Jesus. Where everyone who has fallen asleep and lays in the grave will be called to rise from the grave and stand before Christ the judge. And they will find themselves of one of two paths. Either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment. What does it say on these there again in verse 29? And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Wait a minute. I can't be right. Resurrection of life to those who have done good? Done evil, the resurrection of judgment? Wait a minute. I thought Christianity wasn't about our works. It's not. We need to see here what it means to do good and evil. The resurrection of life is for those who do good. The good is that hearing and believing Jesus. Because the wages of sin is death. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us is good of our own account. Not one of you. I don't care how clean of a child you thought you were. I don't know how much of you think you might be actually put together but we're not. None of us. We, left to our own deeds, deserve nothing but God's righteous, just judgment. Because look down at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus coming in, in judgment carries out this just judgment. And he would be absolutely just in condemning every last one of us in this place. But there's a hope of the resurrection of life to those who hear and believe. The good that leads to the resurrection of life is for those who hear and believe. Who Jesus has awakened to himself through the power of the gospel. To those whom he will, he is called to himself. Through that gospel message. But. If that is true. For the good. Then what is true of those who have done evil. It's to reject that message. To reject. That message. The words that Jesus has spoken. 
that they have failed to believe and to hear him and to follow him and come out of the grave from death to life. Those who do evil are those that deny Jesus. And all that is left for them is a resurrection of judgment. For we will all die once, but how many will die a second death because they have rejected the king in doing evil? They have rejected the savior of the world in doing evil. And yet even here there is hope. Even here is a warning rings out of judgment. There's hope. Because that judgment has yet to come now. Again, friend, if you are here and not a believer, then this should drive you to an urgency to come and to believe in Jesus. To come and see a man who has life in himself. Come and see a man who has called you to life in him. Come and see a man who has spoken so that you may hear and live. Come and see a man and believe today. I'll be up here up front after the service. If this is you and you have never believed, I invite you to come and talk to me. Let's walk out what it means to follow Jesus together. You don't have to do this alone. But for you who have believed, let this move us. Friends, we sit in a place where there might be a church on every corner. There's four Southern Baptist churches in our town. And yet, there's a plethora here in Central City, in Centralia, and the surrounding area. If they were to die today, will die without ever knowing and hearing the words of Jesus. We have the words of life, the words of Jesus. Let us not sit here idly while they perish. But may we be moved to urgency to take this life-giving message to them so that they may hear and believe. Let's point them to a man who said, come and hear my words and live and believe in him who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we...